Hi, I'm Rod Morrie, host of State of the Game, and you're listening to Feed the Ball with Derek Duncan on the Talkin' Golf Network. Visit www.talkandgolf.com for more quality golf podcasts. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Feed the Ball podcast. This is episode 49. I'm Derek Duncan, and my guest today is Reese Jones. With the Masters behind us, we're entering into the heart of the major tournament golf season. That also means that now, and during any given year really, we're going to hear a lot about and from Reese Jones, and particularly about the work he's done modifying and prepping whatever golf course is likely set to host the next championship event. In this case, it's Bethpage Black, site of this year's 2019 PGA Championship, a course he's modified for the 2002 and 2009 U.S. Opens and tweaked again for this year's major. Reese Jones needs no real introduction, but for the sake of formality, here it is. Jones has been in the golf design business in one form or another since he was a boy doing odd jobs for his father, Robert Trent Jones. He joined with Trent Jones officially in the 1960s and in the early 1970s formed his own design firm, through which he's constructed roughly 100 original courses in the U.S. and abroad. But when the last sentence in the big golf book is finally written, Jones will be best known as the architect who had the most influence on how major championship American golf courses looked and played for a time period of at least 35 years. His restoration of the country club in Brookline, Massachusetts for the 1988 U.S. Open started the run, and in the intervening decades, he's remodeled, sometimes several times, host courses like Medina No. 3, Pinehurst No. 2, Torrey Pines, Eastlake, Oakland Hills, and Baltusrol. Interestingly, and perhaps ironically, he's made a specialty out of remodeling a number of his father's most notable courses, including the Atlanta Athletic Club, Hazeltine, Bell Reeve, and Congressional. The tally now stands at 16 U.S. Open and PGA venues, totaling some two dozen tournaments, plus another nine Ryder, Walker, and President Cup courses. In 2021 and 2022, the U.S. Open will return to Torrey Pines and the Country Club. As one of the profession's most historic figures, I've wanted to have Reese on the podcast for quite a while to find out a little bit about what contemporary golf design looks like from his admittedly unique perspective. With Beth Page on the docket and Tiger Woods' past success there, now is a good time to have that talk and to get his thoughts on record. We had a nice friendly conversation about renovations, major championship golf, his father's legacy, and other topics. So here he is. Enjoy exploring the world and words of Reese Jones. So are you fatigued at this point by talking about Beth Page? I imagine you've had quite a lot of conversations in the last few months. Not really, because Beth Page uh, was very important in the world of golf. Uh, it was the first publicly owned golf course to host our national championship, and it was the dream of David Fay and Jay Matola and myself um, to hold it and resurrect the golf course, and then uh, to have another open and now a PGA and then a Ryder Cup. Uh, really kind of uh, uh, confirms uh, that we were correct in our desire to get the public golf course into the national spotlight. Now, you use the word resurrection, which is a good term for it. Tell me what 
you found, I know it, the golf course had fallen on some hard times. What, what did you find when you, when you first went to Bethpage and started working on it? And what did you use as your cues to rehabilitate and, you know, bring it back into the form that we've all first saw in 2002? Well, I was invited by the USGA to go with their staff on May 1st, 1995, uh, to play the golf course. Uh, Rabbi Mark Gelman organized it for us. We were going to try to sneak in there and get in the parking lot at 3 a.m. and not let anybody know. Yeah. Um, but that didn't work out because Rabbi Gelman uh, told them we were coming. So they blocked out a few times for us. And uh, I played with the USGA staff. And, and, I mean, there were footprints that were a foot deep. And I would ask uh, one of the rules officials uh, for the USGA if I could uh, take a drop. He said, absolutely not. Uh, so basically, the course uh, had never really been changed uh, because it was public and there hadn't been any green chairman or or committees. Um, and uh, so nobody had any ideas of how to, how to change it or wanting to change it. So it had just really kind of fallen into disrepair. Um, bu- trees were growing to the bunkers. The grass lines were uh, not the same. Uh, the, the turf wasn't that good. And we just had to come to the conclusion how much money it would cost to um, rehabilitate the whole golf course. And uh, then uh, the USGA decided that they were going to, uh, instead of paying a fee at the end, they would pay the fee in the beginning to uh, bring the golf course back to its original state. So when you when you begin to the process of, of rebuilding the golf course, um, was it mostly a matter of, uh, you know, getting the infrastructure right, uh, grasses, drainage, or were there fundamental aspects of the golf course that needed to be changed as well, knowing that the pros were going to be showing up there for a U.S. Open in a few years? Well, um, I think we had to rebuild all the bunkers. Uh, we had to add length to the golf course because um, they were starting to hit it even back in 2002, much farther. Um, we had to regrass a lot of the uh, areas we had to uh, take the, uh, the some of the trees out that had grown into the areas where they were really were not advantageous to the shot values um, and and then a lot of uh, like the 14th green had three bunkers because they decided to make it easier a lot of maintenance changes were uh, design changes to make it easier so we had to bring it back to the original Tillinghast style which is Probably his boldest style, the biggest bunkers I think Tillinghast ever built, and more frontal bunkers mm-hmm. uh, than normal because he was really one of the first architects to believe in shot options. Yeah, so so in your mind when you saw it, and I, I don't know how familiar with the course you were before you started working on it, but when you saw it and, and kind of started to walk around and become familiar with it, you could tell that it was a tournament quality golf course. Maybe you didn't need to do a whole lot of adjusting to the strategies because it was all already right there. Well, it already had been and, and like state opens had been played on it. The sign was on the first tee, about how difficult it was. Right. And, um, it, it, there were, um, se- several golf courses. When Tillinghouse was built, it was the fourth golf course built. He redesigned the green course, uh, and then he, uh, designed two, two more playable golf courses courses and then the black was his ultimate challenge which was really patterned after pine valley because of the sandy nature of the soil and the topography Mm -hmm. and now uh heading into this year's pga championship which is in a couple weeks now as we record this 
uh, have you done any other alteration to the course or, or adjustments or have you been involved in anything else leading up to this event? Oh, yeah. Since 2002, we've, we've rebuilt the second green, the third green, the 14th green. Um, we've added just recently a, uh, an area that was probably lost on the 11th green. Um, we've um, added some length. We've uh, added bunkers. Um, so over a period of time, uh, we've just cared for the golf course with the uh, Parks Commission and uh, upgraded it. We upgraded it for 2009. Then we had some Barclays events, uh, which are part of the FedEx Cup, and now we're having the PGA. So, and then, then before the Ryder Cup, we'll, we'll actually uh, modify the golf course and probably enable uh, our long hitters to have less of a penal mm-hmm. aspect of the, off the tee. So, um, that be you know, like we'll, we'll wide, widening things out a little bit, widening, cutting it down. But it's it's really not the rough isn't too severe right now. Um, it's um, and it's the fairways are maybe twenty two to twenty eight yards wide, and they haven't really changed much from the Opens or the uh, FedEx Cup events. Um, we've opened up the eighteenth hole. We put some more bunkers uh, short um, so that the eighteenth hole will, will entice them to hit driver. Uh, but then when they play uh, the Ryder Cup, uh, they'll be bound to driver because they can carry the right bunker, which is two ninety. Uh, off the tee and the left bunker is 305. So that grass will probably be cut down to entice the fact they'll have a a, a long shot and then the, just a wedge shot to the green for the Ryder Cup. Yeah. Uh, so Bethpage is such a unique place. Like you mentioned, that, you know, that it's been notorious throughout its history as being a difficult golf course and uh, it showed well in tournaments. And do you feel like it it favors a certain style of, of player does it? It seems like you know it's a long course. I remember in leading up to the 2002 Open when the the you know you lengthened a lot of the holes and added some some distance, and there was even talk back then that you know so the shorter players in the field might not be able to reach. Like I think it was the tenth fairway. You know, there was some talk and concern about that. But you know, is it is it just is it going to reward like the a power player? You know, so many of the great players now are it's a power game. So does that fit into that type of uh, players repertoire arsenal? Well, I guess um, almost any golf course, uh, unless it's like uh, Harbortown, favors um, the longer hitter. But if it's tight like Harbortown and short, then it's a finesse golf course, which uh, doesn't uh, give the long hitter the advantage, as Dustin Johnson proved in the final round uh, at the Heritage Classic. So I think it probably does favor a longer hitter. Um, But at the same time, um, if you look at the past uh, players, the players that um, were on the top 10 and the leaderboard, uh, they all weren't longer hitters because you do have um, an ebb and flow at Bethpage. Like you start off with a uh, driver short iron, then a driver wedge, uh, then the, the par three is strong, but then the, the fourth hole is reachable in two for almost everybody. And uh, then the sixth hole is a driver short. So you can get off pretty easily without bombing the ball in the mm-hmm. beginning. Then you hit uh, the seventh was a converted par five to a par four. Eight is a long par three. And then nine, 10, 11, 12 really favor the longer hitters. But then 13, 14 uh, are birdie holes. So it's got an ebb and flow. And I think that's why the the professional golfers really love Beth Page Black because they have places to really make up ground if they lose ground in, in the middle holes. 
and of, of course, I think weather is going to be a big issue this year, uh, depending on, you know, if they get rain or what the temperatures are going to be like. That could, you know, certainly weed out uh, a percentage of the field. Yes, uh, we got through the winter well. Um, there's been uh, no um, grass lost, um, as there was several years ago. Um, they're rolling the greens five days a week, uh, sometimes a heavy roller, um, they're mowing them down to an eighth of an inch right now, and they're going to mow them down closer. Uh, the golf course is in really great condition. And the concern about everybody about it not being in good shape, it really has a better chance of being in good shape in May than it does in um, August because in, in May, everything's growing. Everything's popping. If it's springtime, it's all on the incline. And uh, in August, you're just trying to hang on because of the heat and the humidity and uh, the the amount of play that's been on the golf course. So uh, it's actually probably a better time for Beth Page Black uh, to have the PGA Championship. And, of course, you know, you've got other golf courses. You've been doing this for a long time now in, in, you know, making adjustments to courses, setting up golf courses for major tournaments, you know, remodeling courses in some instances. And I'm just curious, you've got, and you've got, you've got Torrey Pines and Brookline, the country club of Brookline coming up for future U S opens. So what is the, what is your process? Like when, when an organization comes to you or, or a club and they know they're going to host a major tournament, walk us through the process of, of how you determine what needs to be done to the golf course. I, I'm imagining there's a, it's kind of a delicate balance here. You've got different, uh, people who have different requests or demands and there are different needs, their tournament, uh, you know, there's a certain requirement that the golf course has to be uh, play a certain way because you're hosting the, the best players in the world. You have membership issues. You've got, you know, the PGA or the USGA. So how do you begin this consultation process? What's your, what's the process and how you d- determine what the program is going to be? Well, uh, the Country Club of Brookline is my first U.S. Open redo, and I've done seven of them. And um, it was I worked with a green chairman by the name of Ken Burns, and so we kind of worked together to restore the golf course. It's where restoration really started, uh, because architects had come in in previous years and built greens that really were not the same character and size of the original greens. They were rebuilt uh, basically for when when Clyde Street moved, and um, when they had some problems with some rock on one hole, and then. Uh, the first hole was moved because they had a racetrack there mm-hmm. in, in its early years. Um, and then we we found that a lot of bunkers had been eliminated. So we just took our backhoe out and found these in these holes that we dug sand. So we, we, really, we really brought the golf course back uh, to its former glory while at the same time lengthening it uh, to get it ready for the um, 1988 U.S. Open. And... Um, I think that's that was the first real restoration because uh, we found the old features. Now, uh, now with Torrey Pines, um, that was a different story because it was a great site, but it hadn't been really optimized. So in that case, we worked with the city of San Diego and uh, the Century Club guys uh, to really maximize uh, that that site, and so we moved a lot of holes closer to the canyons, closer to the ocean, and we're doing that right now. Just there last week, we're moving the fourth hole closer to the ocean right now, and then uh, rebuilt the greens so they're more conducive to championship conditions, and really giving the, uh, the setup people opportunities to really change the hole in any given day. So Brookline was more of a restoration, which started this whole trend of restorations 
around the country. And whereas Torrey Pines was basically a new golf course on an old site and an improved routing. Yeah, I had Brian Silva on uh, a few episodes ago, and I asked him, what was the first restoration in your mind? Like, when when did you become aware of that that notion, rather than just renovating old courses to modern standards, like putting a course back and discovering its historic architecture? And he mentioned that your work at Brookline was the first that, that really put that notion on the map. Um, but like you like you said, a lot of the, a lot of the work that you do now is not, especially for tournaments, at least, you know, it's, it's not restoration. Is that because occasionally like you go to a golf course and you just realize that if you would restore the golf course to what it looked like in 1925 or whatever year it was built, it just wasn't going to be uh, a suitable major tournament venue under those conditions? Well, that's true because the game has changed. It was even changed. Um, you know, over the years when they went from the wooden shaft to the steel shaft, it changed dramatically. Then the ball improved. And, you know, the manufacturers, uh, I kiddingly say, have really stayed way ahead of me. Every time I come up with an idea, like at Torrey Pines, to make the back hole locations more demanding than the front hole locations, they come up with a new ball that stops the ball on a dime. So, um, you know, they, uh, they seem to have my number quite often. Uh, when I try right. to make these changes to make a, a championship more demanding. Um, but I, I think um, it, the, every, everyone is different, and I think we need to worry about the length a little bit, but we can't overestimate it. I mean, David Fay and Mike Davis uh, really incorporated the drivable um, par four, uh, which in many instances, like our 14th hole at Torrey Pines, worked out very well, and it worked out very well for, for Kerry Hagen and those of us at Bell Reeve last year on the 11th hole, mm-hmm. um, it's exciting, but you can't use it too much in the beginning of the tournament because it slows down play. Um, so, but I think we're going back now to the more conventional, old time, uh, narrower targets uh, off the tee, not the wide fairways. I think that um, you know the the green speeds have increased so much, so a lot, a lot of greens have had to be changed to accommodate the increased speeds. So that's another factor. I mean, Augusta National's been doing that for years. Uh, so we just have to keep up with the manufacturers, with the with the skill levels of the players, uh, their physical capabilities. But but the USGA has drawn a line in the sand. It's, it's just that we can't stop uh, the players from improving their physical techniques and. You, they use the track man now, uh, much like baseball. It started in baseball, now it's into golf. And uh, they know more about their sh- their shots, their dispersion of shots, and we have to factor that in too. You know, it's just, it strikes me, you know, having these conversations with you and, and other people that tour-level golf is just so different than anything else. And it's almost – it seems like almost an, an impossible – like you just mentioned, like it's a, it's a Sisyphean task to try to present golf courses – that I mean, you can make a golf course difficult, but to, to really make it compelling and, and to create a golf course where they can demonstrate all their skills is almost an impossible task. It's The idea was laughable a few years ago, but it's almost as if there should be just tournament courses, you know, just for professionals. Uh, because, and, and you please weigh in on this, because what you do is, you, you know, you get in these, these alteration situations, setting, up, setting courses up for majors and, and making some strategic changes, but then you know, the other 51 weeks of the year, everybody else has to play it too. And they're not going to go back to the, 
to the back tees. But, you know, if, if the bunkers are rearranged and the greens are oriented as such, to, you know, for a challenge, you've got to strike that balance of how everybody else is going to play it. No, you're absolutely right. Um, Sisyphus uh, never did get a rock to the top, did he? He did uh, not. He's still still <laughs> pushing it, actually. <laughs> and I think that's probably the case for a lot of people that have aspirations to be major champions. So maybe that's a good analogy. But... Uh, I think to some degree you're you're absolutely correct. I think you have to be very careful in these redesigns that you don't build a church for Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to make sure that it's going to be playable uh, for the members because that's, that's the people that sustain the golf courses for the other nine years before they have another major championship. Um, but, I mean, like Beth Page Black, they've got other golf courses where mere mortals can play and, and uh, people wait in line to play that the black horse because it is so famous and so dramatic. Um, but at the same token, it's not a golf course they'd have to play every day. Um, but I think that is the challenge for us now because we are worried about the growth of the game. We don't want to build golf courses uh, that are too difficult um, for the everyday player. Um, and so to some degree, we have to put the hazards pretty far out for most of them. Then you, you mow the fairways wider, you mow the rough down, you decrease the green speeds, um, but the same token, uh, you also need to sort of give them more access to the green uh, uh, via the ground for the uh, shorter hitters, uh, the ladies, and the uh, the seniors. So uh, you, you do have to think about that as you design these or redesign these golf courses for championship purposes. I think we did it perfectly at the Atlanta Athletic Club uh, for the PGA Championships because. It's still very, very playable uh, for the members, as a, and it was a good challenge for the uh, the best in the game. And the the other side of that discussion is that uh, so many of these clubs, including the athletic club, uh, they you know they, their reputation is tied up in many ways to the important tournaments that they've held. There are many venues that view themselves and want to be looked at as championship quality layouts. So you know it's. They actually kind of, you know, embrace, you know, some of the things that you would do to set up their golf course for a major championship because they don't want to see tour players come in and shoot 22 under par in a major tournament. You know, they want to, it's kind of a a little bit of a bragging rights to be able to host these things. No, you're absolutely right. They don't. Um, However, I don't think that uh, around even par is going to win these championships. I think that these players are so, so good now and they work so hard at their games and the equipment is so much better. Uh, that uh, the dream is to keep it single digits mm-hmm. under par um, because I just think that the over par winner uh, will, would be uh, brought about mainly by weather conditions or factors that weren't playing on. When when you started, you know, you started uh, the first one you mentioned was Brookline you did in eight, for the 88 U.S. Open and you uh, remodeled golf courses throughout the 90s for tournaments. I mean, could you imagine back in 1990, you mentioned a minute ago that, like, that the players could carry at Bethpage, they'll be able to carry a, a corner bunker at 290 yards. I mean, could you, in the, you know, when you were prepping, let's say like Pinehurst, uh, you know, guys, some guys were still using steel shafts in their drivers and hitting balada balls. I mean, could you imagine at that point that you'd have to consider a 320-yard carry off the tee? No, when we did Pinehurst number two, we, I, I, I did that restored that twice um and we kept having to go back 
as far as we could. But a lot of these golf courses now have maximized their length from the back tees, um, and there's nowhere to go. Um, and so you're really not going to see uh, too many major changes on these championship venues because they're actually going back to a lot of the same ones. They're going back, the U.S. Open's going back to the classic courses. Um, so you're not going to see the major changes that I had to make to get these courses ready, like Brookline, um, because uh, it really had to test the, the best players of the game at the time of that uh, championship. So, uh, I, and I also think you're going to be going more to the West Coast courses for primetime TV and the East Coast courses for the revenue-producing capabilities of them. So I think you're sort of getting into rotations now and repeating uh, championship venues uh, more than ever. And I think that's when they write about the things that we did, the the thing that I love about the fact that the courses that we've redone, just about every one of them has had a repeat championship, which means it was very well received. Mm -hmm. Are you in favor of, at some point, probably soon, the USGA advocating for some kind of a tournament golf ball or a slight rollback or you know the pga of america the pga tour is that something that that you're in favor of um not really um i think it'd be very hard for these kids that's that grow up with one ball and then have to convert to another ball um and have to learn their clubs again and, and learn the action of that ball uh it's it's a tough question because they are hitting it so far uh, and we as architects have to really uh, consider uh, landing areas for 300 and some odd yard drives. And we have to really consider the sharp dog leg, how that's going to be played, because now these guys play these holes over the trees instead of around the trees, mm-hmm. as they did originally. Um, but I I really care more about uh, the growth of the game, the health of the game. And you take, um, if you start, if you throttle, back the ball for everybody i think you're going to lose a lot of these young people that don't have the time to uh, play golf as much in their youth um and you take away their home run uh i think it would be very uh disconcerting to them and i think they may not play as much because they love to hit the home run and actually the spectator at these uh, championships like to see uh the home run the real problem is the par fives and uh, augusta can't convert their par fives to par fours because they got history so that's why they have to lengthen number 13 and uh put more trees on the left of number 15 uh to really make those par fives play a little more difficult um but at the same token you can throttle back uh par fives to par fours for the pga championship and the uh, u.s open so it's only the two par fives that are left that really have to worry you and hopefully you have one that's short one that's long to make them different Mm -hmm. i know the pga tour would I mean it's hard to envision a scenario where they would go to a tournament ball and I agree with you I don't think a, a roll back across the board for recreational players is is a good idea but it seems like maybe the USGA or or the Masters could introduce a ball just for professionals just for their events and just to kind of can keep the uh, you know the cats out of the bag but if you can draw it back just a little bit and kind of keep the integrity of some of the golf shots that have always been so important on these historical golf courses uh, it seems like that that might be a good I- idea because otherwise as you mentioned before in our conversation the players themselves there's going to there's going to be increases i mean it's it's probably not going to stop we see there's another generation of players pro- who are probably in college right now and even in high school that 
you know, are, are going to be longer than Dustin Johnson. We've seen a little bit of that so far already. So um, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that the USGA might step in. I, I shouldn't say I don't know if I'm optimistic, but I, I'm hopeful that they will. But it, would you be on board with uh, just a tournament ball for, for professionals? Well, it'd have to be. Yeah, I mean, it would, <laughs> it would make. Um, I, I just, I, I just, uh, it's, it's a tough deal because I don't believe the players want that. So, um, so it's going to be. Some do. Tigers set in favor of it. Um, well, yeah, they're, they're, they all have different opinions. Yeah, but um, I just don't. I hear that the players are not in favor of it and they're opposing it. So, uh, it's it'll be uh, a difficult decision to to make under those circumstances so let's uh, let's see what happens but i think you know they're studying the situation the rna and the usg are studying it um and but they're mulling over uh, throttling back the ball but then how do you go about it uh, will the manufacturers get on board i doubt it um so you really have the manufacturers and the players against it and the golf association's maybe pushing forward so it's it's going to be a difficult decision to make yeah just on this topic one more one more question you mentioned that a lot of these golf courses that are hosting major championships now american golf courses you know they draw the rough in you mentioned the width of the fairways 22 to maybe 28 yards wide and that's kind of where it's been in a lot of these for a lot of these courses obviously not shinnecock or or aaron hills but a lot of the kind of the parkland style golf courses perhaps is it do you think it's possible at all to set up a golf course for a major tournament and defend it just through contour and slope and not rough. You know, Augusta used to be that way. And even they introduced, you know, the, the, the shortcut of rough, uh, but that used to be all about contours and angles and slopes. But I mean, is that, is that style of, or a concept setup concept, uh, obsolete now? Well, see, Augusta is the most, um, copied golf course uh, for championship purposes probably over time uh partly because you just brought up a very very valid subject uh they're green contours and um don't forget they've had to modify them over the years because the green speeds have increased from seven to about 13 although they don't ever give the players the stint meter reading so they have to go out and sort of determine it themselves um, and then you have the elevated greens, and you have these um, fall-offs on the sides of the greens, which make it a little more difficult for the uh, good player because he's farther away from the target when he ha- makes his recovery. Um, and uh, what's so phenomenal about uh, Augusta is uh, take the 16th green that my father designed um, – where the pin is on the last day, you can go for the pin, but then you bring the bunker or the water into play more. You can go for the slope, which Tiger did and played it perfectly. And two players made holes in one by doing that uh, in the final round. And if you miss the slope, then you're way in the back of the green or you're up on that terrace and you have a treacherous putt coming down and you just have to hope you get it near the hole. So, that green really made you think about wh- how you're going to attack the hole. And I think that um, maybe the green contours, uh, whether they're subtle with little pockets like Brookline or Bethpage or Baltusrol, or they're dramatic um, like Oakland Hills, um, they're the things that are going to determine the quality of the play of the day uh, for each player uh, in the championship. So I think that's where par 
is going to uh, be be more of a standard. It's it's the green contours because they're playing the drive and gouge game now, so they're getting a lot closer to the greens. But they got to consider their ability of getting it near the hole. Now they they know the dispersion rate what it is, and they don't hit it very often at the target that they intend to, and they they have to play their shots when the when the PGA or the USGA tucks the pins, uh, probably to uh, uh, the air on the proper side so they don't get into the water or the bunker or down the slopes. So um, even though they're hitting shorter clubs, they got to calculate their second shot because of the green contours. It's, you know, I, I guess the, the other way to look at it is, is, is rough, is the idea of the concept of rough, is that absolutely, you know, necessary now on, on America for American majors, you know, in, in yes. Scotland? Yes. It is. Well, yeah. I, I didn't. I interrupted you, but no, no. I, I wanted your opinion on that. You know, because there's, a, it's. It would be a fascinating. I was going to say it's going to be. It would be fascinating to, to see uh, a course with no with no rough. But Shinnecock was was really wide. But and if you don't get a lot of wind or Aaron Hills, you don't get a lot of wind. You know, you see what happens even when a course has a lot of green slope and fast speeds. But I mean, I just love the idea of of firm ground. And contour and having to be in a certain angle to to hit a certain portion of the green. I mean, that's just a classic way of looking at golf. But it it just doesn't. There doesn't seem to be too many golf courses where you, where you can effectively rely on that those combinations uh, and not get just destroyed by the by the pros. Well, um, because they spin the ball so much, the ball is is uh, designed to spin off the tightly lot the. You know, back when Bobby Jones uh, was winning on wider fairways, um, I'd say our fairways were an inch, inch and a half. And so, and he didn't spin the ball at all. Mm-hmm. So you release the ball to the hole. Now, these the, the agronomists, the green superintendents are so good that they can really have a really tight lie. And so they can spin the ball, uh, you know, unbelievably uh, off those tight lies. If you have an inch and a half rough, the, the ball goes down to the equator, so it's halfly, it's half of the ball is below the, the grass. The spin rate goes down by uh, probably three quarters. So they have to play a different shot. Uh, even though the rough uh, allows them to forward the ball to the green, they have to calculate a different shot, and it's going to release more because they don't, don't have the spin rate they do off these tight lies on the fairway. And then uh, when they go into the three-inch rough, which is the way Beth Page is going to be set up, uh, they can still, you know, strength is going to allow them to forward the ball, but then they really have no control over the ball. So I think that's the value of the rough. It mm-hmm. isn't to, to penalize them a full shot. It's to make them have to uh, come up with a different shot. The same thing with trees, just like Augusta National. They showed why trees are so important on parkland golf courses. Tiger hit into the trees on 10. He got a penalty. He hit into the trees on 11. He hooked the ball out, out of that. And even though the pond that my father put in there in the 1940s uh, would have come into play if he overhooked it, he had to manufacture a shot. Now, Tiger won the Masters because he can manufacture shots. Now these guys that hit so far, they don't have to manufacture the shots as much as Tiger had to in his prime. Mm-hmm. So I think because Augusta had the trees and because it had the, the, the rough, almost uh, you know, really not that penal, it really gave Tiger the advantage to win because he he had all the shots in his bag. 
you mentioned your father a minute ago, and I, when we spoke the other day briefly, I, I mentioned that I had found the story, and it, actually your, your father wrote it. From, it was in 1949 he wrote about measuring distances, uh, measuring the distance that the pros were driving the ball to help him kind of figure out how he wanted to approach the first real modern uh, renovation of a U.S. Open course for the 1951 Oakland Hills U.S. Open. And you and you were involved in helping measure those drives at, at Medina, I believe it was, wasn't it? No, at Baltusrol. Oh, at Baltusrol? Well, he talks yeah. about in the story, he also talks about uh, measuring he, at Canterbury in 1940, they were driving at 253.4 yards was the average. And then at Medina in 49, they, it was it only gone up like less than seven yards. But your father was the original person who kind of popularized the notion of preparing tournaments for golf courses. And he took a lot of heat for it over the years. You know, the, obviously the 51 Open was very famous. And, you know, when he did uh, Firestone and Hazeltine and Belle Reve, the pros uh, weren't too fond of those. You know, I don't think they were they were still adjusting to, you know, the, the modern uh, architectural style that, that your father had. Taking criticism is kind of in your family. Do you ever feel like like you're criticized for trying to prepare a golf course for a major tournament? Well, I I get criticized, sure, for the players um, that play the, in the events, uh, the ones that don't play them well. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's my father told me that if I got into championship golf, and I, I guess I've got about 25 national championships now combined with all my different golf courses. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think I just said before, the beauty of uh, what I've done is that they've uh, been regarded as really good championship golf courses <clears throat> and uh, the golf associations have gone back to them. Um, but I think, um, I forget what uh, Sandy Tatum said when they criticized uh, the fairway cut at the Atlanta Athletic Club. He said, we're not trying to uh, please the best players in the game. We're trying to identify them. And I think that that's what... Um, championship setups are all about and i think the greatest pleasure i've had is tiger woods has done so well on my redesigns and he was uh when he was the number one player curtis strange won at brookline when he was the number one player and if you if the cream rises to the top uh then you've done done your job so despite the fact that you might get criticism from those who don't fare as well that's expected and uh, actually uh, they, if they spell my name correctly, I think that's good. <laughs> Why do you think Tiger's done has such a great record on the courses that you've redesigned? Well, he talks about Torrey Pines a lot. And um, uh, what he loves about Torrey Pines is you get what you deserve. And he says it sets up well for him, his eye. And, um, I mean, he's won there eight times, I guess, since I redid it. and won the U.S. Open on a broken leg. Um, but if a golf, if a player goes into a golf course and he has a positive approach to it, he's he's going to do well. If he goes into a golf course and doesn't uh, it doesn't suit his game, um, then he probably is going to do well, no matter how hard he tries or how he strikes the ball. So I just and I and he, he won first at Cog Hill, he won at Beth at Beth Page. Uh, I mean, I was. So excited! I completely redesigned East Lake over the years, and we keep doing work there. Um, we brought that back from um, 
sort of a mm-hmm. condition that wasn't very good and um, rebuilt the entire course and he won last year. And that, that really pleased me because uh, he managed that golf course extremely well and it was manageable for uh, for him. And uh, he's always played well there. Um, and I think uh, you'll find him uh, even doing well at Torrey Pines. And I think you're going to see him in contention at Beth Page because he likes that golf course. Right. I, I just I wonder is there do you feel like there's something that that you're presenting to the field as an architect maybe a, the, a pattern of bunkering or the way you orient greens or or make them visible that is more appealing you know what's he reacting to I guess it's it's something that you're doing in your redesigns that is fitting his eye I mean have you thought about exactly what that might be Well I've always believed in definition. Um, a lot of people believe, uh, like uh, Mackenzie, believe in camouflage. Right. Um, so I've always believed in definition. I like at Belle Reve, uh, we completely rebuilt that course, golf course. One of my father's courses several years ago, we've been tweaking it over the years. And um, if it wasn't for Kepka, he would have won there. Um, but again, um, we, we took out a lot of trees. Uh, we took out trees on the uh, second hole and got rid of an awkward hole. Um, we, we had the flow of the ground work better for the better players. Uh, we had the green conjures such that they held the shots. Um, I think that, um, I, I redesigned these golf courses so that they don't reject good shots. And I think that's why Tiger does so well, because he can pull them off. Yeah, I'm a professional level player. I think loves loves the, the idea of definition I mean, and be able to know exactly what the shot is that they have to hit. And if you're presenting clear targets out there, I think they can, the good ones when they're on form can really thrive on a golf course that does that. And, and, you know, if you, if you create hazards, et cetera, it puts their minds and gear better. And, um, you know, when, see, and, and the good players, and I, I think Kepka's going to be one of them can analyze the golf course and determine whether or not to go for the flag, like the sixth hole of Bell Reeve. Um, in certain, uh, like the right side of the green, it's really treacherous to go for it. You can really lose some shots there if you miss. And I think that <clears throat> what we do for Tiger is we give him the opportunity to, um, you know, on several holes, just play it for par. And then we give him the other opportunity to, to go for the birdies or the eagles um, when he has the opportunity. And he can analyze that. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I've always been a big fan of his because – not only has does he grow the game, but he brings in uh, fans that aren't golfers. Um, and I mean, uh, the day after Tiger won at the Masters, they sold out Saturday Sunday at Beth Page, and they sold out the British Open. Yeah, so uh, I guess he moves the needle. I think I think he does. I've heard that somewhere before. <laughs> <laughs> Trent Jones had one of the longest careers in your profession, and and you also had a very long and, and lucrative career. Nobody's better to answer this position to answer this question than you. Did did your father's design style change over the years, or did did you feel like his aesthetic at least changed it all over the years, or was it pretty consistent? Well, if you look at his old designs, like uh, one of his first ones uh, in Rochester, I mean, uh, he put a lot of uh, character in his bunkers, uh, like they're doing today, um, but they weren't. Um, the windswept uh, collapsing bunkers. They were just uh, sculptured like a McKenzie bunker or a Tillinghast bunker. 
and then I think he probably got more like the Augusta National Bunkers for, uh, after that. Um, that may be a little bit the style. He got away from the sculptured look and more of the the bunker that released to the bottom of the uh, the sand and uh, was easier to uh, extricate from the hazard. Uh, so I think maybe his style changed a little bit in that respect. Um, I think his green contours um, and really uh, I learned a lot from him regarding green contours, how they work, how you can have some areas of the green that are too small. You have to have big enough targets for the player to go to. But don't forget when he was designing greens, they were playing like Tom Watson and releasing the ball of the hole mm-hmm. rather than like Brooks Kepka who's flying the ball of the hole. So it's it, it, the, the green contours play differently than they than they did in his era. And early in his career, you know, he he started building golf courses in the 1930s and, and then after the war when things began to pick up again, but it's it's funny now when we think about your his golf courses and we kind of I should when I say we I mean this very generally this is just sort of a perception that you get out there but you know the perception is that he built you know narrow holes with flanking bunkers and they were kind of there were penal elements to it and um there it was they were all difficult but it's really interesting to go back and look when you can find them pictures of the golf courses that he was building right after world war ii and and throughout the 50s and see how open they were and i mean obviously the tree planting hadn't kicked in yet but the fairways uh you know you can find old aerials of of nassau county where he built like the double par three holes, which is really an innovative idea. And, you know, those fairways look like they're probably 60 yards wide. And it, it's it's a stark contrast from that era than what, you know, you see when you look at a lot of his golf courses now that maybe haven't been or have been renovated or haven't been, quote unquote, restored. Um, it, it's just there's a misperception out there a little bit about the style of, of golf uh that he built, and that's why I asked you if you thought his like his design ideas had changed through time. Well, everybody uh, that's a good designer, um, they learn as they go, and um, I think the fact that he measured the golf courses with uh, uh, his sons doing the measuring uh, indicated he knew he had to make changes as the equipment improved. <clears throat> but see, he got known for the uh, being for the open doctor as I've been in the last 20 some odd years. And I think those are the courses that people remember him for. They they forget um, the public golf courses that were wider, less bunkered. Um, So you basically as a golf course architect, even then and now today, you design for the desires of the client. And uh, when you have a major championship, I think you brought it up earlier in this conversation the members don't want uh, the golf course uh, to lose. They want the golf course to win uh, along with the champion. They don't want the scores to be too low. So as a golf course architect, you really uh, have to work with the green committees, work with the officials of the clubs, work with the golf association to really make it the ultimate test. And then you have to really kind of peel it back. When Dad did Oakland Hills, Oakland Hills was a Donald Ross course where the bunkers were ugly and they're way far away from the greens um they really didn't come into play for the best players of the game um he had to bring that golf course back from uh the the lack of maintenance during the 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 depression and the second world war but then uh what the greatness that he did to build one of the great golf courses of the world which is still is today 
he put the bunkers where they would come into play for the member as well as the uh, best players in the game. And he took away that, uh, the, the, what Tillinghast used to call uh, what the duffers' headaches. Um, and uh, he took away those bunkers, and he put the bunkers where that they would really affect the best players and probably be avoided by the poorer players and turning Oakland Hills into one of the great golf courses because it was a great routing, a good routing, uh, but the bunkers really didn't come into play. Those green contours are very severe that, that Donald Ross uh, built, and he really didn't change those. So um, I think he, he really made that a much better golf course by increasing the length, uh, converting the 18th hole to a par four, uh, and um, really converting par fours, par fives to par fours. Uh, it made it great for a championship, but then made it better for the members. So, so same question for you. Have has your approach to architecture changed throughout the course of your career? Have there been any major shifts or um, or subtle tweaks or a change in aesthetics or uh, little little nuances or things that you like to put in that you've developed or evolved into? Yeah, I think I think it has. I think if you go to Dan Zante Bay, which is probably one of the great golf courses in the world, it's down in Loretta, Mexico. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we have. Um, uh, a lot of grass, and we got uh, desert, we got dunes, we've got cliffs, we've got canyons, we've got arroyos, we've got mountains. I mean, it's probably the most diverse site in the world. And so on that site alone, I had to change my design style from hole to hole because I had different conditions. And so you really have to design your golf courses if you're in Arizona versus New England uh, uh, differently. Um I think one of the trends that's a sh- sort of a shame is this uh, major removal of trees uh, on parkland golf courses because trees are very, very much a part of uh, the environment and the round of golf. I think thinning out the trees like we did in Medina, we took out 1,700 trees on number three so they could play out of them is important. But uh, the wholesale removal of trees, I think, uh, really detracts from the playability of golf courses. Do you, th- do you would you say that a lot of uh, I, I think I think a tree removal argument would say someone would say you know when you look at pictures of Oakmont when it was first built there were no trees there I mean there were copses around the edge but there were no trees and then they they planted them you know throughout the years so their justification would be well we're going back to the original intent when there weren't any trees does that argument right. have validity Yes you hit the nail on the head you that's that the founds designed Oakmont to be an inland links. And then they made the mistake of planting trees mm-hmm. because everybody was planting trees. And so they did the right thing by taking out the trees and restoring the founds intent, which was an inland links. Uh, but then people use that as the model to take out trees on courses that were not designed as inland links. And which, which are really designed as parkland golf courses, uh, where trees like Augusta National are very much a part of the strategy of a round. But uh, you sort of hit the nail on the head, and that was that's the example people use, and it's a wrong example because they, that was never intended to have trees. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the golf courses that this wholesale removal is being a part of uh, did intend to have trees. In fact, at Baltusrol. Tillinghast uh, hired Olmstead or the club hired Olmstead for the tree planting plan, 
and it's absolutely gorgeous. And I just got came back from Red Stick where we planted trees 15 years ago. It's one of the most enjoyable places to play golf because the golf holes are framed and the trees are magnificent. And and at Eastlake with the trees that we planted there, I mean, the players love them. They love the framing of the holes. Uh, and you can clear out the trees so you can look across the golf course without taking out too many, but you really need to keep the trees to keep the strategy of the parkland golf courses. Peachtree's done a great job of that, uh, thinning out the trees. And now you, you know, I think there, there was a time when you, you you kind of felt isolated in a hole, but now you have these views across the property under, you know, through the, the trunks and through the limbs and it really creates a beautiful environment. Yeah. And when you hit in the trees, you then have a shot. I mean, when I, when I was a kid, I'd learn how to hook it, had to learn how to cut it, uh, had to learn how to play off of, out of a fried egg, which, you know, that's a heresy now having a fried egg. Uh, so, um, you know, we had to learn because we didn't have the maintenance budgets when I was a kid that they have today. Uh, but we had to, and that's what I was talking about Tiger Woods. I mean, he manufactured a shot on the 11th hole. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, uh, he was in the pathway of the, um, uh, where the, the spectators go and he had that shot available to him. But uh, I mean, will the players in the future, if they take out all the trees, be able to contend with Augusta National anymore? It's a good question. You know, I, I, I made, I've made the argument that, you know, as architectural purity and if you think about the way the golf course was historically, yeah, the, planting trees at Augusta, is, it kind of make, kind of makes you cringe. But if you didn't have a lot of those trees, you know, the, the golf course it, with modern technology and, these, and the players, it, you know, could be rendered obsolete. So they, they do serve a function for that particular tournament. Well, they serve a function for every golf course, unless it was just, unless it's a Lynx or a Heathland golf course. I mean, we won't forget Bubba Watson's uh, wedge shot in the playoff against Ustazen. So, um, you know, then you have to you have to come up with a shot. I mean, <clears throat> the 18th hole in Augusta, uh, uphill, it's hard hole, uh, and uh, you just don't want to go right and get in those trees. I mean. Tiger made a bogey on last hole. Fortunately, Kepka missed the, the putt ahead of him. But um, you know that that the trees affected uh, the outcome of that tournament and could have affected it even more. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's funny. The topic of trees. A lot of you know, a lot of people blame the club committees and memberships of the 1940s and 50s and 60s for, for planting trees. But it is interesting if you go back and read a lot of materials from the 1920s even. Like you mentioned that Olmsted, uh, the involvement at Baltusrol, you know, a lot of the clubs were developing tree programs back in the golden age. And a lot of people don't want to admit it, but it it did happen. Uh, and even architects from that era, you know, saw the value in trees. They weren't all anti-trees. You know, Bobby Jones said he hated trees on golf courses, but um, you know, they then he then he built uh, Augusta and, and Peachtree, where trees are elemental to the environment there. So it, it is a, a little bit of a misconception that it was only in the uh, the mid century period that, that people ruined golf courses, quote unquote, with trees. Well, I don't think Bobby Jones said that because uh, East Lake is where he learned to play, and he loved he loved the shots. And they, <clears throat> when I was redoing it with Tommy Barnes and. Uh, Charlie Yates and Charles Harrison. Um, but when we we would go around together, and, and they would talk about the shots that Bobby Jones pulled off from behind this tree or behind that tree. So I don't think he hated trees. 
the real um, the, there's the, the, you're absolutely right. People overplanted golf courses, so they became uh, forests that you couldn't play out of. Um, and that was, but uh, there's nothing wrong with trees uh, on a golf course. In fact, environmentally, I think the taking them out in a lot of communities is prohibited uh, because the trees are so important to our environment. So I, this this movement is uh, is mind-boggling and it's, it's wrong in my mind. Okay. <laughs> um, you had uh, you started your career in the 1960s, so you, you've seen a lot of. A change in the industry and a lot of different trends come and go. You started off, and your dad was, um, you know, obviously I think without question the major figure in golf course architecture during you, you know, when you were getting into the profession. And and I think he influenced the trends and a lot of other people who are trying to get jobs were trying to probably do that style of design because it was working. And then Pete Dye shows up and, and introduces another element to it. And you get into the, the 80s and people start to copy Pete Dye. Then you get into the 90s, which kind of stretching into now, we have this a new trend with, of naturalism and neoclassical principles. And the, the as you mentioned before, like the eroded bunker look uh, has you know been given incredible accolades and the other thing that's happened now is is more of a, a trend and again these are sort of generalities but a, a trend toward kind of easing off the player whereas maybe in the in the 1960s and through the 80s the concept of of a golf course needs to be difficult and challenging was in vogue now it's kind of the opposite now you have mammoth dunes or david mcclay kids saying you know i'm going to give you par i'm just going to defend birdie and creating a lot of width and that's the current trend do you see a, a turn back toward a tightening up of golf shot demands? You know, I know this is a trend and all trends change and it's not going to last forever. I'm curious to get your, your viewpoint on not, not what's coming next because nobody knows, but do you think it's possible that we could get into some mindset where we want to be challenged on the golf course more than maybe some of the prevailing architects now assume? That's a very good question. Um, I think that goes back to Beth Page Black. I mean, uh, you people want to play the black. In fact, the opening round, I shot 76 uh, in a tournament. And uh, I had um, 13 pars and five bogeys. I was pretty proud of myself. And and that's not my best score, but that might be my best round. Um, so I'm not sure uh, that you really want to trend. I think what's a fabulous part about golf and golf courses is that, uh, like I play with my caddy for my grandson um, in these U.S. kids tournaments, and um, and then I can play with him. And um, it's a golf, it's a sport of a lifetime. It's uh, getting away from the devices, um, you, you, you know, and um, – Golf's a hard game. I don't care how easy you think you're designing it or how hard you're designing it. It's hard no matter what. You're going to miss some shots. Um, and uh, I just think that the greatness of this game is that all these golf courses are different. You can go from spot to spot, from country to country. And, I mean, you, I'm working a lot in Japan right now building tournament golf courses. And um, the trees are beloved and the, the water features are beloved. And uh, they love their gardens. And if you took out trees like we've been doing here in Japan, uh, they would not be pleased. So every every place you go, uh, you get a different experience. And um, I I don't know uh, what this wide fairway 
uh, trend has become. But the real problem is that um, too many people are following that lead. And, uh, and, and, you know, you can change greens, you can change fairway cuts, you can change bunkers. But once you take out the trees in, in our lifetime, you, you ain't going to see them back. Uh, so that, I think that's something you really have to worry about. Um, I know, I know our time's about up. I'm going to ask you a couple quick questions just as we kind of wa- start walking toward the door. It, we mentioned uh, restoration, which you, the work you did at Brookline and how that kind of started a new trend of restoration that's really been dominant now in, uh, for classic older golf courses uh, for the last 20, 30 years now. Is there a golf course that you can think of that your father designed that you think is worthy or should be restored to the version that he designed it, that maybe the day that it was open or whenever that golf course soon thereafter was in peak form? That's what I, I really, I don't think I can answer that question because um, in a lot of cases I was just a little kid when he was working on those. Um, but I think Peachtree, you brought that up. Um, I think, you know, thinning out the trees, um, Finally, putting in a few more bunkers that he wanted to put in uh, is probably it's it's that that golf course has stood the test of time. It's one of the great golf courses in in the world because he selected that site from um, you know twelve different sites and found the ideal site. Um, a lot of people don't realize that the original golf courses were built with elevated greens because. Uh, architects wanted elevated tees, valleys for the fairways, elevated, and they look for sites that had that those natural features. And Peace Tree sort of embodies that. Um, you know, I think that um, that we we built too many golf courses for um, different purposes over the years on on low sites and flat sites and less than perfect sites. Uh, but I think the the beauty of my father's era and Mackenzie's and Ross's era is that they were able to select sites and uh, build natural golf courses didn't didn't cost cost that much to build and uh, I think as long as they maintain uh, that simplicity um, then I think we're uh, we're going to move forward with, with golf it's interesting when you see pictures of of peach tree from the early 1950s the, the bunkers don't look like they look now you know now everything's they've really adopted the augusta national approach to their maintenance and it's fine the surface playing services there are are elite but you know the early versions of those bunkers are kind of like like a little shaggy a little eyebrowy you know they don't look like the scalpel cut bunkers that uh we're kind of accustomed to there now it's pretty interesting to see that's those right. pictures well that's see that's what dad did he he had um you know irregular lines they, they became they came irregular because they didn't have irrigation at that time but they were sculptured um, and just like we just went in last year, the Dunes Club is one of the great golf courses in the world. It's sort of a coastal copy of Augusta National with the elevated greens. Mm-hmm. And uh, every time they play a tournament there, they they get um, praised by the people because. But we just made those bunkers much like Augusta National bunkers today. Augusta National bunkers today were were design, redesigned years and years ago. Uh, to release the ball to the center of the bunker. And um, I think that that trend has probably been used by an awful lot of golf courses, but it, that wasn't the way the Augusta National Bunkers looked originally. They were sculptured and the grass came over the slopes. So um, I guess that's 
from a championship standpoint, an improvement because uh, now uh, you have a chance to recover better than you did in the past. The last, the, the current era that we're in, architectural era, has has in some ways, at least through the rankings, been defined by some of these exotic golf courses that have, you know, some of the greatest golf properties in the history of golf have opened up in the last 20, 25 years or so, coastal dunesy sites. I'm curious, what is the best natural site that you've ever gotten to work on? Ocean Forest in uh, Sea Island. Sure. Boy, setting, this setting is amazing. Well, the dunes were there, and um, we, we uh, laid out the golf course because the dunes uh, lines actually laid out the golf course for us. Um, you know, we didn't want to break the dunes. We kept the dunes and the fairways. Um, and then, uh, we were able to route it to finish on the ocean, the 17th, 18th hole. We were able to get to the Hampton river, but, um, the, um, the whole routing in the interior part of the golf course, uh, these were dunes that had been covered by trees. And, uh, man, when we walked through there, I could hardly see, uh, from one person to another. It was so dense, but. We really, and then we had wetlands that we had to incorporate and parallel those, and it just worked out fortunately that um, that the holes could still fit on this land and not uh, and because we had the wetlands that we had to, to we didn't want to cross them we wanted to we wanted to go go along them so um, all these natural features uh, helped us but I think maybe. A better site than that even is probably Danzante Bay or even Playa Grande. Mm-hmm. Uh, two courses that I, I just completely re- redid, uh, Playa Grande for Discovery Land. It's one of the great golf courses in the world. It's got t- uh, 10 holes on the cliffs on the ocean. Um, every hole has a view of the ocean. Every hole, even the interior holes, have uh, various features and split fairways. And uh, That's in the Dominican bunkers. Republic, right? The Dominican Republic, yeah. It's... Um, and everybody that goes in place, an Amman Hotel, Discovery Land property, and um, anybody that goes there is just blown away. And the same thing at Zante Bay in Loreto, Mexico. I, I discussed that before, but we've got dunes, desert, mountains, canyons, arroyos, cliff. We have a par three that's probably one of the best in the world. The 17th uh, hole out on the promontory. Yeah. yeah, so I've been, uh, toward the end of my career, I've been fortunate to work on uh, two of the greatest sites, I think, in the game of golf, in Zante Bay and Playa Grande. And uh, I feel very fortunate to have had those opportunities and to have had a client that let me do something very special and have it become extremely well-received by the players. I asked this question of, of all my guests, and it's kind of a way to pay tribute forward to a colleague or a, or, or a peer. What's What's your favorite modern golf course that wasn't designed by yourself or anyone in your family? Hmm. I don't have favorites, to tell you the truth, because uh, and, um, I'm not even a big fan of the uh, the rankings um, because a lot of courses that are um, extremely um, well done uh, somehow either don't get seen or played by enough Raiders um, and um, – I always count them, make sure there's still a hundred on them <laughs> on those lists. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to think, um, I, I'm, I'm sort of one of these people that I, I like almost every golf course I play, uh, because the game of golf has been so essential to my life. And, uh, 
it's it's very important not to be too critical. Um, I think what, what um, the head of Truon Golf, he gave a speech to the golf course architects at our American Society Golf Course Architects meeting recently, and he said, um, one thing in your, as designers, you you have to start listening more to the players and stop listening to the critics. The critics are a very small group, and they're critical. And you need to listen to the players and, and find out what they like and build golf courses that uh, get packed by them and uh, stop listening to the critics and, and start and making golf courses that are actually too hard for the players to enjoy. And I think that's important. I, and so I don't know what my favorite golf course might be. That it could I be one that just kind of touches you emotionally. You know, it doesn't have to be something from the rankings. You know, you just get a good feeling when you're there. Yeah, let, uh, let me think. Uh, um, hmm. I'm, I'm taking up your time right now, by because uh, if you're asking me for one course, I just can't give you the answer. Okay, all right, we'll take <laughs> a pass. Because I, I like I, I I like a lot of my contemporaries' designs. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sandhills is, of course, the the leader in the clubhouse. I, you know, he, that gets quite a few mentions. You can imagine probably what what a lot of the what gets said most frequently. Yeah, I haven't been there. So, uh, uh, and I guess that's been a model. I guess that started this model of these uh, sandy areas and ragged bunkers. And so that, that's, that was the model, but it was there to be taken. It was there to be taken. Yeah. Yeah. At some point you will exit stage, hopefully, you know, not anytime soon, but, but hopefully, you know, that, that day will come and, you know, projecting into the future, 10 or 15, 20 years, whatever, there'll be other people who are tasked with setting up golf courses for U.S. Opens and PGAs and Ryder Cups and so forth. What advice would you give the next generation of people who are going to be uh, charged with that task? Well, don't fear the repercussions of your design. Don't fear what the players might say. Uh, have a thick skin, like my father told me. Um, and don't build a church for Easter Sunday. Make sure it's uh, still playable. Don't make it so difficult that it can't be played on an everyday basis because uh, that golf course has to be sustained. I mean, I just went to – I'm a member of the Royal Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews, and I just went to a, a – a meeting with uh, right after the masters a lot of members and the captain of the rna told us <clears throat> that um 10 10 uh, percent of the golf course in scotland have closed and another 10 percent are scheduled to close this year so what does that tell us that tells us that we really have to design golf courses uh that people enjoy playing that are affordable to maintain uh that will be played on a continuing basis because if scotland is losing its golf courses um the rest of the world's in trouble. So I think we need to think about the everyday golfer and not necessarily build a church for Easter Sunday and build something that's so hard. Uh, unless you have an alternative, uh, another golf course or two to play uh, in the same facility, uh, we, t- we have to make sure that they're, they're, they're playable for uh, the beginning golfer, the average golfer, and the less proficient golfer. Okay. Well, I know... A lot of eyes would be directed up toward Beth Page in a couple of weeks, but with Tiger winning the Masters even more so, the curiosity and the excitement meter is, is off the charts. So we'll look look forward to that, and hopefully the people who listen to this will think about the, the work that you've done there as they watch this tournament. But great catching up with you, Reese, and I appreciate you doing the show. Well, thanks a lot, and I uh, 
Look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Reese. Good talking to you. Okay, that was Reese Jones. You know, it's amazing to think about that man's career. He began designing golf courses in the 1960s, so the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. That's six decades of design work, very remarkable. And any way you slice it, he's been one of the modern era's most influential figures in golf design. So I I think he definitely got through his viewpoint on trees during that discussion. And of course, as you know, in, in any trend, the pendulum is always swinging one way or the other. We are in a period now where there's a a, a vocal, probably minority, but a very vocal minority that is anti-trees. And and I think he's right. There are a lot of people who would clear cut, you know, many golf courses across the country that, that are respected and revered. Jones clearly resides on the other side of that discussion, as you heard. He values trees and sees a, a purpose for them on golf courses when they're part of the natural environment. I keep going back to what Michael Clayton always says. He, he often paraphrases Harry Colt when he says, and I'm paraphrasing him now, but when he says that trees should be part of the scenery but not part of the stage, meaning that uh, it's okay you know, and even desirable to have trees in the atmosphere of a golf course, but when they begin to dictate the shots and the strategy of the golf course, that's a little too close. So, and so, of course, there's there's a needs to be a balance there. I went back and tried to find the quote from Bobby Jones where he proclaimed that he did not like trees on golf courses, and I couldn't find it. So I asked some friends on Twitter where that uh, quote came from and what the attribution was, and um, actually uh, several people answered, and, and actually it was Mike Clayton who provided the context for it. Uh, Bobby Jones was sitting with the British writer Alistair Cook one time, late in Bobby Jones's life, and they were talking, and I think they were at Augusta National, and he said to Alistair Cook, he said, I don't see any need for a tree on a golf course. Now, I don't know what the context of that was. I don't know if, if that was maybe a, a viewpoint that Jones developed later in life, but uh, at some point, at least told through Alistair Cook, Bob Jones uh, would prefer golf courses with no trees. And maybe we can just assume trees that were not in play. But we'll leave that there. And that's a a spicy topic to pick up uh, at another time, considering uh, how Peachtree and Augusta National now look and the nature of those sites upon their founding. But that's enough for now. One more uh, bit of housekeeping. We talked about how Uh, Robert Trent Jones had his sons measuring drives in preparation for his work leading up to certain U.S. Opens. Reese mentioned that uh, he was at Baltus Roll measuring drives, which that was 1954. And then that must have been, I'm guessing, in preparation for Trent Jones's remodeling of Oak Hill for the 56 Open. He was doing that, though, in the 40s. As I said, I pulled a, uh, an old golfdom story that Trent Jones wrote in 1949, August of 1949, where going back to 1940 at Canterbury and again in 1949 at Medina, he was also measuring drives and trying to de- determine uh, what the landing areas were for the, the best players in the world. So just a little clarification on that if it seemed like Reese and I were going in two different directions. Um, I was referring to the article, and he was referring to his job at Baltusrol in 1954. Hope you enjoyed that talk with Reese. I had a wonderful time talking to him. Thanks to Reese Jones for agreeing to do the podcast. I know he doesn't do a lot of these, so it was a treat for me to be able to talk to him. Thanks to you all for listening. I'd love to remind you again, if you haven't done so yet, please head over to iTunes and give Feed the Ball a rating and a review, if you would. 
If you're on social media, you can find me at Feed the Ball on Instagram and Twitter. Please give me a follow. When you see a new podcast posted, please retweet it. Send it to your friends. Let people know about it. Please help do what you can to help grow the podcast. We're going to sign off for now. I hope everybody enjoys the PGA GA Championship at Beth Page. Thanks to the Sundogs and the Haraway Brothers for the music. I'm so glad we had this time together. Until we get a chance to do it again. Adios. <laughs>